And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the world of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one of had withdrawn from, the, from them in Pamplia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of the brothers at Lystra and Iconum. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them of observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Father, we're thankful for your word, and we pray that you would speak to us through it today. Uh, Lord, teach us and help us to be not just hearers, but doers. We pray you would open our hearts to your word and open your word to our hearts that we might, uh, again, obey and that we might be changed by what transpires here today. We love you, Jesus, and pray, God, that you would uh, just speak through me. Help me to decrease now, that you might increase in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, what we have is in this passage, it starts out with uh, Paul really doing what I think is one of the most frightening things that anybody can do in ministry. Right? It starts out, just to me, it's incredibly frightening. And that is going back and checking on people who are supposed to be following Christ. Uh, as I was thinking about this passage, I thought about Facebook, right? Because uh, almost everyone in the world has Facebook. And I say almost everyone in the world because I do not have Facebook. One of the reasons I do not have Facebook is that I spent um, at least 10 years doing student ministry and I just found looking at the Facebook pages of my former students to be one of the most discouraging things that I, I'd ever encountered, right? We just, we poured all this time. We loved these kids. We took them places. We, you know, played games. We stayed up all night. We, we taught and taught and taught. When they lost someone, we sat with them. When they uh, had a game, we would go and watch. And we did all these sort of things. And then uh, they'd move off to college, and then we see page, 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 picture after picture after picture of kids that we knew and loved, drunk, doing stupid things, breaking the law. I just thought, I can't, I can't personally take it, right? It would just it caused me to think I wasted 10 years of my life on more than one occasion when I would look at how people were behaving. Now, again, it's not my responsibility. People have to go off and make their own decisions. But I would say it's just, it's one of the most frightening prospects to me in ministry, the idea of going back and checking on everyone and seeing how they are doing. But that's what Paul wanted to do. And so as this section begins, Paul looks at Barnabas and he says, hey, let's go back through all of these cities and, uh, and we'll see how things are going. And Barnabas says, that is a tremendous idea. Let's do it. Let's get Mark 
and let's, let's uh, head out, right? So it's sort of like, uh, hey, we're getting the band back together, right? They got the original people. We're going back on the road. And this is where the conflict comes in, and we're going to get our first point. Let me just read those verses again for you, because I, I, want, you to, I want you to hear these each in their section. So after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take along John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take one with them who had withdrawn from them in uh, Pamphylia and had not, go on, had, had not gone on with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed off to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through uh, Syria and Cilicia. So here's, here's the, the first thing I really want to show out of, this, out of this section. All right? Here's the first thing. There's, a, there's, not always, there's not always one right answer. There's not always one right answer. Barnabas wants to take along John Mark. Paul instead reminds Barnabas, he's a quitter. He's a quitter. I don't want him. I don't want him, right? We set out last time, and what happened? They left uh, Antioch. They went to Cyprus, and they did their ministry in Cyprus. Um, and when they got to the end of Cyprus and they were ready to sail on to the next city, it says John Mark went home. And Paul said, he's a quitter. I don't want to take him with me. We don't have any idea you know, we can go back and look in Acts 13, 13, where Mark goes home, but we don't have any idea why it happened. If he was sick or if there was uh, some sort of problem, if he was frightened, if we, we just don't know. We just, we just know that he went back and Paul didn't appreciate it, right? Something about him leaving the team changed how Paul saw him, and Paul said, I'm not taking him on another trip. And so I believe what we see here is the division between two spiritual gifts. We know from uh, when we met Barnabas, I think it was way back in Acts chapter 4, that he's the son of encouragement. That was his name that they called the son of encouragement. And so we see this division. We see the difficulty with these two gifts, prophet and encourager, prophet and encourager. And so uh, this is kind of where the, I think, where the stress comes in. The prophet part of Paul is quick to come along and point out all the ways that John Mark was not measuring up. Mark did this wrong, did this wrong, did right. He, he pulls some stuff out and he says, Mark is the wrong guy for this job. But the encourager in Barnabas is saying, no, Mark is full of potential and we don't give up on people. We're going to keep him, and we're going to keep working with him, and God's going to use Mark in a powerful way. And so the prophet's seeing sort of the bad things that he does, and the encourager is seeing this potential, and that's what's bringing them into conflict. Howard Marshall, a writer, he says this. It comes up consistently through the Scripture, and I believe it comes up ever since the Scripture's been closed all through ministry. This debate between what's more important, is it the individual or the work? Is it the individual or the work? Because in this situation, the encourager sees the individual. He's looking at John Mark, and Barnabas is saying, we can't give up on him. And Paul is instead thinking about the work. The prophet is seeing the work as a whole and saying, we can't afford to have someone who's going to quit on us. This is too important a job. And he's thinking about the work as a whole. And so that's what really reminds us that in many situations, right, not always, but in many situations, there is more than one right answer. Because I believe that Paul and Barnabas are both correct. 
If we look at that, like the Howard Marshall, the question, what's more important, the individual or the work? The answer is yes. Yes. They're both, they're both incredibly important. So what we say is when we sacrifice uh, the individual for the mission, right? We sacrifice the individual for the mission. Ultimately, I believe the mission will suffer. So if we look at the church and we say, we're trying to accomplish all this as a church, and then um, maybe you have one broken, broken-hearted person in the church that's causing some difficulty, our more prophetic people are going to say, this person is a problem and we should just send them out, right? Or when they get upset and they separate, the more prophetic side will say, they were causing trouble anyway, let's don't go and get them. Let's just let them, they, they left, they're happy to be gone, I'm happy that they're gone, let's just leave them. But the more encouraging thing is saying that those people with the more encouraging gifts are saying, let's get that person. Let's restore this relationship. Let's work together. We're, we're not just a, a kind of thing that moves along at the, um, that we're concerned about the fact that we're moving at the pace of our weakest member, right? We, we want to make sure that we bring everybody along that we can bring along. And I think when we get focused, so focused on the mission, we end up hurting people. But we can also get so focused on people that we don't do anything, right? So then the mission drifts. We get really encouraging. We get really focused on our people. And then we, we drift. And I've, I've sat, I sat with a pastor uh, within the last couple of months. And we were talking about evangelism. We're having breakfast together. And he said... What we have to do first is build a wall around our people and then we can build bridges. And I'm thinking, it breaks my heart to hear you say that, right? How do I correct thinking like that in a person's heart? We can't build a wall around our people. We can't wait until everybody is prepared enough to do the ministry because no one will ever be prepared enough to do the ministry. We just have to get started, right? So you, you see where you can actually drift, drift, drift and not accomplish the things that you're supposed to uh, when that happens. I also, think this, I also think that they're both right for a couple of scriptural reasons, right? Let me just kind of spell those out for you. The church in Antioch, it seems to me, uh, thought that both of them were right because if the situation had been full of sin, right? Paul and Barnabas uh, get into a fight. Paul and Barnabas says, hey, you either take his book or you take nobody. And Paul says, okay, nobody, right? We've seen those kind of fights happen lots of times in our lives. And so the church, if they looked at the situation and said, hey, you guys are full of sin. This fight here is full of sin. The church would have said, fix it or we're not sending anybody out. But the church didn't do that. The church sent them out. It says explicitly that they sent out Paul and Barnabas. I feel like if uh, this had been a sinful situation, they wouldn't have sent out Barnabas either. I wouldn't send out Paul until he fixed his situation with Barnabas. Does that make sense? If someone says, oh, I'm mad, but I'm, I'm, I'm mad, but I'm still going to be a great missionary. I would say, no, you're not. Fix that situation with Barnabas. If you need to go to Cyprus and fix it, then go to Cyprus and fix it and then come back and we'll send you out. But the church didn't do that. The church sent them out. And so I believe the church, because they sent at least one out, that the church sent both of them out. Secondly, if Barnabas had just sailed off in his sin, right? If Barnabas got mad, they, they refused to uh, reconcile and Barnabas just took John Mark and went off to the work, I believe Luke would have told us explicitly. And then Barnabas, in his sin, sin ran off and because that's just what happens in the scripture even when leaders and we'll talk about that later even when leaders do something stupid the scripture tells us 
that they do something stupid. They don't, they don't just, we, the, the writers of the scripture don't hide it when the guys fail, when the ladies fail. They show that really clearly. So I don't think that either group is wrong. I think there are, therefore, sometimes when, it, when there's more than one right answer. That's the, that's the first thing, okay? Here's the second part. It starts in verse, in chapter 16. Paul also came to Derby and then to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Here's the second thing. So the first one we would say, there isn't always one right answer. The second thing I, I, I think we see here, there are different expectations for believers and for leaders. There are different expectations for believers and for leaders. I listened to uh, Mike's sermon. Last week I was helping with the kids, and so I didn't get to be in here listening. So this week, downloaded it, listened to Mike's sermon. I thought you did a tremendous job with that passage. So if you weren't here last week, I really encourage you to download it and listen to it and just let God speak to you through that. Mike made a great case last week for why circumcision wasn't necessary. So the question is, why are we right back here talking about circumcision just a few months later in the lives of these characters? If you will, look in uh, Acts 15. It's sort of where Mike started last week. Acts 15, verses 1 and 2. It says, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Then here in verse in chapter 16, so 16.3, uh, just one chapter later, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. So why is it that Paul is ready to fight about circumcision in chapter 15, and then he's asking Timothy to be circumcised in chapter 16? Do you see that? Because people look at this and say, the Scripture is inconsistent, but the Scripture is not inconsistent. There's, there's, there's a, I think, a, a pretty good reason behind it. The main reason, I believe... The main reason is because circumcision, like Mike was really showing us clearly last week, circumcision is not a salvation issue. That's what they are saying in 15. In 15, 1 and 2, the people have come from Judea, and they're looking and saying, if you've not been circumcised, you can't be saved. And so that's a, that's a different issue than what Paul's doing here. Well, it's not about salvation. Here it's really about Ministry, right? There are different, this is why I think there are different expectations for believers and for leaders. We see in, in this situation, Paul wants to take Timothy and minister in these cities, Iconia and Lystra and Derby, places that Timothy was known. They knew that his mother was a Jewish, that his father was a Greek, and so they knew he wasn't living as a Jew. His mom hadn't raised him as a Jew, although she had responsibility to do that. She should have been, according to their mindset, raising him according to the law. He should have been circumcised on the eighth day. He should have been following the law all of this time. But they knew that he hadn't been because his dad was a, uh, because his dad was a Gentile. So Paul wants to take Timothy along and minister nearby his home. Oftentimes, 
That meant ministering to Jews, right? Even though Paul would say, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles, oftentimes they went, they started in the synagogues, right? And then they uh, had their ministry there. And from, uh, from starting with the Jews, then going out to the Gentiles, that happened in a lot of those areas. And so in those places, they knew that he was being disobedient to the law, and it would be a sort of a stumbling block if, if the people said, why would I listen to you? You've been rejecting the law your entire life. I'm not interested in what you have to say. We can think about it this way. Let's say we have a, a former Muslim in a place like Ethiopia, right? So someone's raised as a Muslim. They come to Christ, and they're living their life now in Christ in Ethiopia. The question is this. Now, in Christ, is that person free to eat pork if they want to? Yeah, they're free to eat pork, right? When they were Muslim, they were not allowed to eat pork. They've come to Christ. They are free to eat pork. If that's what they want to do, they are free to do it. But listen, if that former Muslim is interested in returning home to his family and ministering to his parents, ministering to his siblings, to his classmates, to the people in the community, other people that extended family that he might know, is he going to be hindered if he's eating pork all the time? Yeah, he is. Right? He is. I've seen that. When people come to faith and they go back, then the first thing, people don't want to talk about Christ. They don't want to talk about baptism. They want to say, oh, now you eat pork. Now you get drunk all the time. Now you're going to pubs. Now you're going to discos. Right? That same kind of thing happens in Chinese families and in Hindu families. Oh, now you're going to change your name. Is that it? Now you don't have to come back. Now you don't have to respect your parents. They start talking about things like that. They're not talking about the gospel. They're talking about something else. So Paul is recognizing Timothy not being circumcised is going to be a difficulty in the ministry in this area. Once they get to Macedonia, it's not going to matter. But here, it does matter. So the question is, can, can that uh, Ethiopian, former Muslim in Ethiopia, can he eat pork? Yeah, he can. Should he? Should he? That's a totally different Question. So Paul is asking Timothy here to submit to circumcision because it's, it, he's asking him because it's not required by the law. It's not, not required by the grace that's in Christ, we should say. It's not required for his life as a believer. But he's asking him to do it anyway to remove this potential obstacle. A guy named Fernando Ajit that writes on Acts, and I read uh, just about every week as I'm studying and preparing, he says this, Paul modeled sacrifice before he asked Timothy to do it, right? Paul had been going along. He had been beaten. He had got, Paul endured a lot of stuff till the, when he got to the point that he's asking other people to be sacrificing. That was part of Paul's life. It had always been part of his ministry not to claim every single one of his rights, but instead to sacrifice himself so that other people could hear the gospel. And that's what he asked of his teammates. I'm sacrificing myself. Are you willing to sacrifice to make some sacrifices? So I would say this. Make no mistake. Being a spiritual leader, being a spiritual leader is a call to personal sacrifice. It's a call to personal sacrifice. I think it's normally a greater sacrifice that's required of Christians in other situations. So I think there's a time that if you're going to be a leader, you're going to be asked to do some stuff that other people are not asked to do. You're going to be asked to endure things that other people aren't asked to endure, right? Maybe you'd, you, you just love to, you love to uh, finish worship and just, man, we're going to finish and we're going to just, we're just going to cut out of here as quickly as we can. But if you're thinking, man, maybe God wants to use me as a leader here at the church 
then maybe something else is going to be required of you. And you might, you might start thinking, Lord, what else is required of me? And then you find yourself running the vacuum or you find yourself making sure the air conditioners are turned off or you find yourself uh, saying, I don't mind to be the one who locks up this week. I don't mind to be the person who comes early and gets the place unlocked and the coffee started and the bathroom's cleaned up. I don't mind to be. That's the leader. That's the kind of stuff that the leader is doing, right? It's a, it's a sacrifice and you're going to be asked to sacrifice in lots of different ways. As you Grow in your faith, though. This is what I think is, is just beautiful about the gospel. As you grow and you experience this deeper calling to self-sacrifice, you lovingly embrace that call. And rather than counting up the things that you are losing, you start to really appreciate the benefits that you have, that God's using you, that God's working, that God's working through you. It's a great thing, right? When, we're, when God's moving us that place, we, don't, we just don't look and say, oh, now I don't get to, I have to be the last one out. That's not something that we count. I have to be the first one there. I have to take the trash out. I have to be the one who gives a little bit extra. That's not what you're counting anymore. Instead, you're just joyful at the opportunity to gain. And so last thing on this, I really think we can see it's a situational kind of issue because you never see anywhere else that Paul asked somebody to be circumcised. In Galatians, they come back and they talk about Titus, and he, talks, he says, Titus... Um, they, people wanted him to be circumcised, and Paul said, absolutely not, right? Because Titus is a Gentile. He was a Greek guy, and there was no reason for him to be circumcised like that. And so leadership, I think, has a greater uh, level of expectation than just being a believer. That's what we see there. Then the final thing in this uh, last section, verses 4 and 5, as they went on their way through the cities... They delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. That's the big meeting Mike was talking about last week. They get together, they talk about what do people have to do, what do they not have to do, all those kind of things. So they deliver these decisions to the churches everywhere that they're going. And the churches are strengthened in the faith and they increase in numbers daily. I appreciate that. <laughs> not Mike, I appreciate Emory there. So Paul starts out with this idea back in 1536. Let's, let's return to the previous places of ministry and see how people are doing. He experienced this division with Barnabas about how they're going to do that. He also probably uh, had to really work through and think about some of these issues that he's got with Timothy. What are we going to do about Timothy? Do I ask him to be circumcised or not? Is Timothy going to be circumcised or not? We can't forget that Paul is going back to a place that he was almost killed, Right? Sam preached on that a few weeks ago, something like that, that Paul was, Paul was stoned and left for dead in these towns. And so Paul is, Paul's got all these things that could have sort of de, de, de derailed the mission or distract him from what he's trying to accomplish. He starts saying, let's go back and check on everybody. First Barnabas, then he split up. Then he's got to deal with Timothy. Then he's got to go back into this place where lots of people hate him and want to see him dead. Any of those things could pull Paul off what he's trying to do. But instead, he's going around and he's teaching and he's delivering these uh, decisions to the churches and the people are being strengthened in their faith, right? We don't see gossip. We don't, we don't see decision. Because you have to imagine, when, Paul, when Paul's rolling into town for the first time, people are going to say, where's Barnabas? Right? You're always with Barnabas. Man, you guys are like attached at the hip, we say in America. You guys are always together. Where's, where's Barnabas? 
Instead, we don't see division. We see these two teams going out. The two teams are, are telling these stories of Jesus dying on the cross, of his burial, of his resurrection, of this new life that's found in Christ. And as they're sharing the gospel, new people are finding this freedom, this life that is theirs now in Christ. And the churches are literally having new people added every single day, every day that they're being added to the church. And I don't think... They were being added to the church. The churches weren't growing because Paul was amazing. I think the, the gospel is amazing, and that's what was drawing people, and that's why the churches were being changed. And the, the beauty of all of this for me, we read about stuff that happens 2,000 years ago, and we can still understand God, God is willing not to count men's sins against them, right? God's willing not to count the sins of people against them if they're willing to repent and come to Christ. And if they can be forgiven, even today, people's hearts can be open, their eyes can be open, they can be changed for eternity. It's incredible news. And so it's not just something that happened in Iconium and in Lystra. It's something that happens here. It's something that can happen in this place today. If you would say, I'm, par- I'm separated from Christ. I don't, I don't know about all this stuff that you're talking about. Then today, I'm telling you, God is willing not to count your sins against you. If you'll come to faith in Christ, your sins will be wiped out. So they're growing daily because they're hearing this incredible news and they're being changed and they're bringing it to right relationship with God. And so Paul's not perfect. We, we see that, right? God, God's working through imperfect people. This is the third point. I don't think I told you. God's working through imperfect people to accomplish his will. Imperfect people. So Paul's not perfect. Barnabas is not perfect. Silas, when they pick him up, he's not perfect. Timothy, when they get him, he's not perfect. And God is still using them. The church back in Antioch, not perfect. But God is using those people, right? When we think about Antioch, we start to think about our church here. Antioch was like taking their best people and sending them out. And Antioch was praying for them and supporting them and encouraging them. And then when they came back, they received them. And then they loved on them and encouraged them and heard reports. And then they sent them back out again, right? They multiplied that team. One team, they sent out two teams from there. They're not perfect people, but God was using that church in a really incredible way. One thing that I really love, and uh, we were talking about this at our Bible study Thursday night at our house. I love about this passage is that the Bible never goes to to these kind of uh, extremes to try to make the heroes look like good guys, right? When you read the story about Abraham, you just come away and think, man, what a liar. What a, man, that dude just lied, and then he said, sorry about that, and he would go to the next town and lie again. He just did that over and over. And Adam had his issues, right? And, and, and uh, Moses had all kinds of issues in his life, and so did uh, David, and so did Noah, and so did Solomon, and so do Peter, and so do Paul. These guys just have problems, but the Bible never covers those things over, right? We understand. Who's the star in the book of Jonah? Jonah is. And this is a story where you would think, well, this is a story about Jonah's failure, but it's not a story about Jonah's failure. It's a story about God's grace. And the, and the hero sort of in the story doesn't do what's right through the whole book. And then he finally does what he wants to do or what God wants him to do, but he doesn't want to do it. And then in the end, he sits down and he's still complaining. At the very end of the book, he's still complaining. And God uses him, right? Jesus is talking about Jonah in the New Testament. So I love that the Bible doesn't kind of cover over the sin of the leaders and the difficulty that the imperfections that these leaders had. 
And I think it's a real, I think it's a real thing that we can put our finger on and say, I believe the Bible is truthful for one reason, because if this is the kind of story that man invents, we don't, we don't make the heroes out to be really flawed like that. We don't make, we don't make it up that way, right? We make our heroes to be a little bit, a little bit better. And so I, I think it's one of those places we can just we can just believe that the Bible is truthful because it gives us an unvarnished um, picture of what His people are like. God's using normal people to expand His kingdom. He's using just plain old normal people. Okay, let me just a few things. How are we going to apply this? And uh, then we'll be finished. Okay, you may want to write these things down. I don't normally say that, but you may want to. First, conflict. Conflict is a fact of life. Okay. Conflict is a fact of life. The fact that the church is filled with people absolutely guarantees that we're going to have conflict. Everybody here is a sinner, so we're going to have conflict. We're going to have difficulty. We're going to have differing opinions about lots of stuff, and so conflict is going to happen. The question is, how do we handle that conflict in a godly manner? And Here's some of the things that I think you might want to write down. First, we handle conflict with humility. We consider other people better than ourselves. The, the way that I've had to eventually with some people in church conflict is just come down and say, that lady loves this church, and I love this church, and we disagree on what needs to happen, but we both believe in Christ, and we both want what's best for this church. So let me honor her, right? Let me give her the benefit of the doubt. Let me see what God's doing in her and not just be so caught up in my own feeling and my own opinion. So with humility... We consider others better than ourselves. That's the first thing. Secondly, this. We, we, we have conflict with an eye toward reconciliation. I have a real problem in my life of just giving up on people. I don't know if you're like that, right? I, I just People do something and I just think, man, just forget it. And I want to move on from people. And it's not a, it's not a real godly thing. So we want to we uh, deal with conflict with an eye toward reconciliation, not a desire to run away. We don't want people running away, right? If you have a problem, then you need to fix it. If you're here and you're coming and you're worshiping and you would say, well, I'm here because I'm so mad at the people at my last church, please fix that. We'd love to have you come. But before you come, would you go and fix that? Just go and fix it. Just go and say, I'm sorry or whatever needs to happen, but go and fix it. So with humility, with an eye toward reconciliation. Thirdly, prayerfully, right? Prayerfully. God, I'm having a conflict with this person or in this situation what, what can I do? Lord, would you give me your heart for this person? Would you give me a heart for the situation? Would you help me see what I'm not seeing? Be prayerful about it. Practically, I'd say this. Do not be writing angry posts on Facebook about people, right? Uh, I remember we, we actually, in, in our church one time in Kentucky, this has probably been 20-something years ago, this lady, this lady got up at the end of the service, right? They said, anybody have anything they want to say? And she said something, and she was talking about, man, Satan's really at work, and some of the people in this church, and we just need to really, really pray because Satan's working through some people. And, and so the service finished, and I went to her, and I said, I kind of felt like you were talking about me uh, in that. And she said, oh, I was definitely talking about you. And I just thought, how about you come to me, and we work that out, Right? I don't feel like I'm being used by Satan. No, I felt like she was, but right, we just need to work that out. So when we write a lot of angry stuff on Facebook, we get up and make a lot of public pronouncements and, and things like that when we attack people, it makes it so much harder to reconcile. It really, really does. Now, I'm not saying don't talk to anyone about it. You need people that you can talk about some things. But scripturally, the first thing that you need to do is go to the person and say, 
I feel like you were talking about me or I, whatever it happened, whatever you need to say, right? But just go and, and do that. Then the last one's this. So humility, eye toward reconciliation, prayerfully. Uh, we're not lashing out at people and making it more difficult. Then the last one's this. Repent and ask for forgiveness. Repent and ask for forgiveness. Early on, we took a, a parenting class. Caleb was still probably uh, a year or two old and lots of stuff we didn't love about this parenting class. But one thing we did love in there was the difference between saying, I'm sorry and asking for forgiveness, right? And so the kind of the point of this Bible study was if you step on someone's foot, if it's an accident, then say you're sorry, right? If you knock over someone's tea, you need to say you're sorry. But if you've hurt someone through your sin, you need to ask for forgiveness, because sometimes we'll just be strong power and offend somebody and then say, sorry. And when we say sorry, then the kind of the point was this. I'm holding all the power in that situation, right? I say something mean on Facebook. You say, wow, that really hurt my feelings. And I say, sorry. And because you're a Christian, then you have to say, okay, we'll let bygones be bygones, right? Well, okay, I forgive you. And, and instead, what you can do is say, when you're in the wrong, listen, when you're in the wrong, just go and say, here's what I did. And if you want to apologize, it's a fine thing to say. I'm sorry. And then this, will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? Right? From the smallest things, when I'm introduced to someone, oftentimes my mind is somewhere else, right? They're talking, but I'm thinking about something that I want to say. And this happens to me so often. I will do that, and then the person is telling me their name. Listen, and I'm not listening to them. And it really helps when I say, I'm sorry, I wasn't listening to you. I was not listening to you, and I don't want to be treated that way. Would you forgive me for that and tell me your name again, please? That's painful enough, right, that you want to, keep, you want to not be doing it a whole lot. But it's right. If you're, if you're disrespectful, I'm sorry, I, I, I said some things to you that were out of character, and I'm a believer. I don't want to be treated that way, and so uh, I don't want to treat other people that way. Would you forgive me for that? It's a totally different thing than saying, oh, sorry, sorry. Okay, so that's kind of the first thing, right? Conflict is real. How are we going to deal with it in a godly manner? There are a few ways, and if you need those, I can give them to you later. Secondly, this, teamwork is critical. Paul and Barnabas needed each other before they divided, and they needed, each, they needed a team afterward. We hear better from the Lord when we're in a team setting. When we're working together with other people, right, sometimes we get a great idea, and we just start charging, and a team person that comes alongside you can say, have you considered this? Right? It just helps us to really refine what God is saying to us. Teamwork is critical. The teams went out in the scripture. It is an expectation of how we do body life in Christ. We do it together. Third thing, we have to encourage emerging leaders. Paul looked at Mark and counted up the ways that he wasn't doing the right thing and was ready to write him off. But later on, by the time Paul's writing 2 Timothy, he's saying, get Mark and bring him to me because Mark is helpful to me in ministry. Mark goes on, and he is traveling later on with Peter. He ends up being the guy who writes down all Peter's preaching, and that becomes the gospel of Mark that we have today. Mark is a really important guy in the life of the church, really important. And so if we give up on people too soon, we miss out on some really special people. So if we major on the mistakes that emerging leaders make, listen, if we major on those mistakes, we cast people aside, we're going to miss out on some special people. And so let's not have some sort of expectation here where people can't make mistakes. Mark went on to be great, and we just have to believe that God's going to do that with some of our people here. 
Three more things. Three more quick application points. We're finished. Four, cultivate a reputation for godliness. What are we supposed to do based on this text? Cultivate a reputation for godliness in this community, in your family, in your life, in your work. People spoke well of Timothy. They brought him to Paul's attention, and Paul used him incredibly. God worked through Paul, and Paul, God worked through Timothy, right? You have First and Second Timothy. God used him as a pastor. He was really important in the life of the early church. So the question is this. What are people saying about you? What do people say about you? What do people say about me? Is our walk with Christ something that causes other people to say, this guy, this lady, they need to be used more, right? God needs to be, God needs to be having more and more opportunities. This person needs to be getting some training about how to be a leader in the church. Is your walk with Christ causing people to recommend you? So cultivate a reputation for godliness. Leaders then and now, this is number five, leaders then and now have weaknesses. I know that you look at me and think, no way, but it's true. Even I have weaknesses. Okay, I'm just going to say just for the recording, everyone thought that was riotous. Okay, let's be a faith community where, where we don't expect perfection out of other people. Let's not give up on one another when we get offended, right? So when I do something that, that you don't like, love me enough or love Christ enough at least to come and say, I didn't appreciate that. And then we can work it out, right? Because sometimes I'm a jerk, and when I'm a jerk, guess what? I'm hard-hearted about it. And so maybe even when you come, I might, my first instinct might to be to justify myself, even though that's not the right thing to do. And that might be the same thing for you. I might come and say, why don't you do this? And then you might say, because I don't want to do it. That, right? We, we just get, we get that way sometimes. So let's not, let's not make some sort of expectation that everyone's going to be perfect. And let's not be a place where we give up on one another. Let's allow people room here to make mistakes and to fail and to do things maybe sometimes that they shouldn't do. If we set our expectations for leaders so high, we won't ever have any leaders. And we are, by the nature of the kind of church that we are, we experience turnover, so we are always needing new leaders. I don't know if you've noticed that, but people are always going and people are always coming. We are always needing new leaders. Let's, let's, just, let's just believe that God can empower imperfect people like you to lead his church. He can do that. Imperfect people like me to be leaders. Last thing is this. What do we do in light, of this, in light of this text? I would say get connected, get, get connected and stay that way. It is not a godly trait in my life that I will give up on people. It's really not. It's something that I hate about myself. It's something that I feel this constant need to just repent of and say, Lord, you never have given up on me, but I'm so quick to give up on people. Don't, don't let that be the way that I live. And so if we have relationships with people, even though they're a little bit difficult, the relationships give us room to be able to come to people and say, you're better than that, right? With our kids, we can just look, and sometimes we can say, you were raised better than that, right? That was a dumb mistake. You were raised better than that. Don't do that because we have that sort of relationship. And we can look at people and say, with love, you know better than that. What are you doing? Don't be like that. We're not just a bunch of particles that are floating around disconnected, serving out a two-year contract or living in Johor because you're Johorian or uh, Singapore because the housing is cheaper or whatever like that. We're not just a bunch of disconnected people. We are a body of Christ. So here's Paul with a desire to go back and visit churches that he had ministered in maybe years before. And he's saying, let's get back and try to encourage those people and, and keep working with them. So I would say get connected and stay connected. 
Stay connected. You need, you need people to help you, and you need to be helping people walk out their faith in Christ. Okay, there's a lot, and I, I, I appreciate that we've gone a little bit, uh, a little bit long. And so uh, let me just, let me just uh, pray for us, and then um, we'll be here if you need to talk or you want to hang out or you say, I missed half of what you said, I'll be happy to email you my notes and, and you, can, you can have a look at the, all those kind of uh, points about reconciliation or any of that together, okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you're, uh, the people that we would call our heroes in the faith were not perfect. Thank you, Lord, that we can see that there really are sometimes two right answers Lord, even though we don't get to follow the story about Barnabas and Mark and what they did, we're reminded that Acts is not a story about Barnabas. It's a story about the explosion of the early church. And so, Lord, you haven't told us every single thing about it. So thank you for those imperfect people. Thank you for their example that they made mistakes. Thank you for the example about how they reconciled. Thank you for the example about how they sacrificed so that we can be a reconciling, sacrificing, giving people so that we can get out and see a church, our church, be healthy and numbers people, not just numbers, but people added daily. Father, we're brokenhearted for those who are trapped in uh, lostness all around us, in idol worship and in false religion and, uh, Lord, in uh, situations that are hopeless And we pray, God, for rescue. We pray for redemption. We pray for your spirit to move in those places through our church so that this community might be changed. Lord, please do not allow us to come and to go. Lord, that we would be the kind of church that would finally one day uh, close its doors or move to another location and the community would not even know we're gone. Lord, instead, move through us in such a powerful way, raising up new leaders, helping us to be self-sacrificing so that our community might be touched by the love of Christ. I pray your blessing on every family that's here today. Lord, any that are lost and are separated, I pray you'd save them this very morning. I pray that you would go with us and provide for us and use us in the way that only you can. We trust ourselves to you, and we pray you'd be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.